dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to mourn the ending of the summer of Bonhoeffer. Welcome back to My Seminary Life. I'm your host, Brandon Knight, and this is it, folks. The end. The last of the summer of Bonhoeffer. Oh, don't worry. We will be back with more Bonhoeffer in the future. We have truly just scratched the surface when it comes to his body of work and what has been written about him. But this is it for our series. And I've said this a few times already, so sorry to beat a dead horse on this. I am ready, on the one hand, for a change. I am ready to start thinking about something different. I'm excited for our upcoming series starting next week, Ancient Greece. More on that here at the end of the episode. But at the same time, although my brain is ready for something different, this has been a very good series. I've enjoyed it a lot. But it's just, it's over. The summer is done by by MSL standards. It is as soon as you finish this episode, it is officially fall. You June seems like such a long time ago and yet somehow here we are. It's the end of the summer here at MSL and you have my blessing. I I just did a little cross over the microphone to as soon as you finish this episode, go get a go get a pumpkin spice latte, an apple donut, a, a pumpkin beer, a uh of light of fall scented candle do whatever you want because it's officially fall once you finish this episode so if you're dropping in for the very first time welcome sorry you came in for the last episode but throughout the summer we have been walking through a chronological journey through the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer through the lens of some of his shorter works. We looked at Life Together, uh, his uh, the catechism that he co-authored, the draft of the catechism that he co-authored, his, his response to the Arian paragraph, the uh, opening to prayer book of the bible we've been looking at some of these shorter works throughout the the pace of his life but in case you like i said this is the first episode you've listened to in the series and you also did not read the title of today's episode which it's fine if you didn't i actually do that all the time with podcasts that i listen to that i'll see that there's a new episode of Russell talk or whatever and I'll hit play and like five minutes into it I realize I have no idea what's actually supposed to be going on here because I didn't read the title so if you didn't read the title today instead of wrapping the series up with one of his writings we're ending the series doing a review of a film on Bonhoeffer called it's called Bonhoeffer agent of grace So let's go ahead and jump into this review of Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace. This movie came out in 2000, which means that it is two years shy of a special 25th anniversary Blu-ray release. Maybe, probably not. Uh, Also, uh, in 2000, that would make me approximately six years old, and that's just to help make some of you feel old out there. I'm about six years old when this movie comes out. And let's just, I want to talk about the movie 
itself. But let's just go ahead and address the elephant in the room. Brandon, how was this early 2000s low budget Christian movie? Let's let's just get that. Let's just address the elephant in the room. And I will say this. For that, for it being an early 2000s Christian movie, it actually wasn't that bad. It is slim pickings there in the early 2000s when it comes to Christian films. This was actually pretty good. The acting was good. Nothing that's like, oh my gosh, stop everything that you're doing right now and go watch this movie. It wasn't like shocking and like the greatest thing I've ever seen, but it is worth watching. It's also like shockingly short. It's an hour and 25 minutes long, not even 90 minutes long. So if you've got time after after you uh, you after you listen to this episode and you go get that pumpkin spice latte, you can go over to the My Seminary Life Facebook page at My Seminary Life Pod. Give us a like if you haven't yet already. I posted a link to the trailer for the movie so you can watch it, get kind of a vibe for it, and then go check it out. You can easily find it. It's literally everywhere. Yeah, it's it's like on all of the free streaming apps that are out there. I watched it on Pluto. It's also, I think according to Just Watch, it's also on Tubi, Crackle, Roku Channel, Freevee, Plex. One I had never heard of, and I don't recommend using it because it had a, it has like a whole family section, but the entire front page was NC-17 movies, so not that one. But it's, it's seriously, it's on all of these free streaming channels or apps that you can download. Or if you have a Roku TV, the Roku channel is already on there. Uh, if you somehow do not have any of these channels or any of, I keep saying channels, like I'm old or something. If you don't have any of these streaming services, these free ones, but you are paying for Christian Netflix, it is on Pure Flix. It is on Pure Flix. There were a few places, I think YouTube was one of them, where you could buy or rent it. Don't do that. Again, not that it wasn't a good movie. It's just that it's on so many places for free. Don't don't spend money on this. Just download Tubi, watch it, and then watch Sarah and Duck. You'll thank me for it later. So Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace, is directed by a man named Eric Till, who directed a whole bunch of low-budget films between the 80s and early 2000s. Again, nothing really to write home about here, other than when I was scrolling his page on IMDb, uh, this one movie that he made showed up called Luther. And I just kind of took a quick glance at it, and at first I thought it said Lucifer, like the Netflix show. So then I got interested and then realized I was wrong. But I'm looking at the like the poster, you know, the graphic that's like for the movie. And at f- when I actually like clicked on the page to look at it, I thought it was a fantasy film because I swear they were trying to copy the show Merlin. It was, you know, the show about young 
Merlin the Magician, like the poster for that looked very similar to what they were doing here with this Luther film. It never once crossed my mind until I was actually reading the plot description that this is a movie about Martin Luther. So the guy who made a movie about Dietrich Bonhoeffer also made a movie about Martin Luther. And so now it is officially headcanon for all of us that this guy was trying to make a Lutheran cinematic universe and never finished. So we need to completely disregard everything I said in the last episode about thinking critically about how we use social media and instead completely abuse it to demand more LCU films. I don't know who else would be in that series. Maybe Pastor Will, but I I don't, <laughs> I don't know who else is worth talking about in the Lutheran history. I thought it was just Martin Luther and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but we want more Lutheran Cinematic Universe films. Eric, give us a call. Kickstarter is a thing. This movie stars nobody in particular. <laughs> you know, sometimes you watch these uh, you watch these Christian films and they slip in somebody just to make us all happy. Anytime Kevin Sorbo shows up in something, I'm a very happy camper. Or uh, who's another one who gets popped in there? Oh, um, the guy who plays Gimli, John Riley's Davies. Um, he usually uh, he pops up in a lot of these. Um, the guy who's Chuck Norris's partner in Walker, Texas Ranger, who's like the pastor guy in Left Behind. You know, he shows up in a couple of these. Heck, even my boy Nicolas Cage was in the remake of Left Behind. Um, yeah, there's nobody. There's like nobody in this movie, or at least nobody that I recognized by name. It seems to be like a lot of foreign actors. Um, our main, our main actor, the lead here, is played uh, is a man named Ulrich Tucker. Maybe it's Tucker, but it's spelled T-U-K-U-R. Tucker, Ulrich Tucker, uh, again has had a lot of acting credits. Nothing really to write home about. Again. But he was in a movie. It did catch my attention. I might look for this at some point. He was in a, a movie, I think recently, called Amen, which is him playing an SS agent who defects and goes to the Pope and informs the Pope about all of the atrocities that the Nazis are doing to the Jewish people. And then he partners up with a Jesuit priest to inform the rest of the world of the atrocities of the Nazi party. Uh, I'm assuming this is a biopic, but I did not spend too much time trying to figure that part out. He did a fine job playing Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I would say he was a good pick based off of just how he looks. If you just take a quick moment to Google Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace, it will pop right up, and he looks like him. It was it was good casting. It was Marvel Cinematic Universe levels of casting there. Of okay, yeah, I can, I definitely would say that looks like a man impersonating Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let's do this. So, before we get into the movie, I did want to make one side comment. I wanted to make earlier that I do find it fascinating that there has been no attempt by a big major motion picture company to make a movie on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Because especially like it's covered here in 
Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace, the last six years of his life are very interesting, where you have this Lutheran minister who becomes a spy for the Allies, who gets involved in as the like ethical advisor to the group trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Like that's, I would say could be really interesting. And I would love to see like a very well produced movie based on his life. I'm surprised that nobody like Spielberg or um, Christopher Nolan, since he does obviously like to occasionally pop off a based on a true story movie or, um, even Clint Eastwood. Like, I'm surprised that none of these guys have taken the attempt to make a movie on his life yet. My only guess is that maybe it's not scandalous enough for, like, a major motion picture company. I don't know. But this is the best we got. Is I think there's, like, one or two older ones. And then, like, a movie based off of Eric Metaxas's book that's more of, like, a, uh, a documentary. But, yeah, this is about, this seems to be, like, it. If you want to watch a movie about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is, this is your best bet. I'm not going to cover every little excru- uh, excruciating detail of this movie. I just want to cover some interesting points along the way. This movie actually opens really well. But I think there's also something that's factually incorrect about it. So um, this movie in general moves at a breakneck pace. Like I said, it's an hour and 25 minutes. Like they cover six years in an hour and 25 minutes. And if I had one criticism is that outside of right at the beginning when they tell you that it's 1939, I don't remember them ever like putting it on the screen 1940, 1941, 1942. Like, I don't remember that happening. And sometimes there wasn't enough context clues to really show that years have passed in between scenes. Either that or those things did happen, but producer Cooper was being a little cheeky and not going to sleep, and I had to keep watching the baby monitor there. So maybe it did happen and I just missed it. But I would say a little bit of a too quick of a pace, especially to get to the part, the bulk of the movie is him in prison. That is the the biggest chunk of the movie is him being in prison. And so it seems like it's a bit of a rush to get to that part. But the movie opens in 1939 with Bonhoeffer worshiping at a black church in Harlem. This was during, historically, they don't really explain this part, But historically, this was during Bonhoeffer's second trip to America. He had just left Germany. He was planning on going to America and staying there. But not too long afterwards, he he realized he had made a mistake. And he ends up taking the last boat across the Atlantic back to Europe. Now, they don't explain all of that part, although they do cover the whole He's he wants to go back. He realizes that he needs to go back. The reason why I like this scene here at the beginning is because it's actually a pretty good show don't tell moment because as we established way back in the episode when Bonhoeffer first visits America and he's appealing to the Americans for sympathy, 
sympathy towards the German people that when he was spending his, his year here in America, he had a really hard time finding a church home among the churches that he would be expected to attend, but rather found that the gospel was actually preached and lived out in black churches in New York. So what you see here is him really enjoying himself here, clapping and worshiping and singing these spirituals alongside the predominantly black congregation. It was a really good show don't tell moment. The part though that I think may be factually incorrect, I'm no scholar on his life, but I did do a little fact checking because something just didn't seem to add up here. They were trying to convince him to stay in America. And one way they did that was by gifting him an advanced copy of his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Kind of to like show, like, look what you could do here. The thing is, though, is that The Cost of Discipleship came out in 1937 in Germany, and it was printed in English in America in 1951. So either this is like a really advanced copy, like 12 years in advance, or I'm mistaken about something, or it's just inaccurate, you know? So beyond that, though, that was the only scene that really made me question how accurate is what's going on right now. From the rest of the movie, as far as I could remember, it's been like 10 years since I've read the um, biography by Eric Metaxas. But as far as I could recall, the rest of it seemed to add up pretty well. Another decent example in the movie of Show, Don't Tell is that in this more fast-paced earlier portion, there's these scenes where they just show him writing And he's writing and he's thinking and he's writing. And eventually someone does ask him, what are you working on? And he says that he's collecting his thoughts on ethics. And this person eventually sits down and reads some of the stuff from his manuscript that would eventually become his book, Ethics. So that was a pretty cool, like, early, like, subplot that you see him, like, working on this book because that was like the big thing that he was working on prior to his arrest. One of my favorite scenes and favorite lines from the movie uh, comes not long after Bonhoeffer returns to Germany. He's back in Germany uh, working at the secret underground seminary like we talked about during uh, Life Together, the Gestapo come to shut it down shortly after his arrival back in Germany. But in this scene, in the movie, he's talking about his, um, his appreciation and his love for Gandhi, how he wants to go to India to study under Gandhi, all the good things that him and his group are doing, the importance of pacifism, And he says this line, and I don't know if this is an actual quote from Bonhoeffer or not, but he says something to the effect of Gandhi's work is proof that not all of our heroes are Christians. And I really 
liked that line. Whether it's an actual quote or not, I don't know. But I really liked that line because, you know, it, it it's encouraging, at least in his mind, that we don't have to have all of our heroes just be Christians. We can look to people outside of our faith who maybe certain parts of what they are teaching does line up with our faith or that in general maybe we find inspiration from in how we then go to worship God. For me as a lifelong martial artist, this is Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee is one of my heroes. I've read the Tao of Jeet Kune Do at least twice, probably like three or four times. And every time I read it, like my my faith grows. You, I, you, you would think that a book that promotes, you know, Taoism, Eastern philosophies, Eastern religions, like, you know, for some people that means that I'm like mixing my faith with things and I'm not even a Christian anymore. But like, there's these moments in the book that I'm reading. I'm like, yeah, that's what the word of God says too. And it actually like encourages me in my faith and just the life of Bruce Lee in general of this person who wanted to live an authentic life like I feel that I desire that as well plus I also like this line because I'm pretty sure it's been a long time since I've hopped on this soapbox I feel like we're not allowed to have heroes anymore I think I talked about this way back during discipleship methods that as Christians, we're not really encouraged to have heroes. You know, any pastor in the pulpit is going to make that line of don't look at me, don't pay attention to me, look to Jesus. And it is true. Like ultimately we are to be looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, as the model of what it means to be a true human. The thing is, though, is that this, when I hear this, to me, it comes off as like this shallow thing that we're supposed to say. You know, don't pay attention to me, pay attention to Jesus. In a way that almost, no, I think it does, like, downplay the significance of what that person is doing, of what that person could be doing. In the life of another believer. I mean, you even look at Paul. He tells the church in Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul is encouraging the church to imitate him, to look up to him as the model, as the hero who is following the the true hero. And I think I think we need to recapture that a little bit of like we can have heroes. Plus, broadly speaking, I don't think we're allowed to have heroes anymore as a negative consequence, a negative side effect of cancel culture. I'm not the biggest supporter of cancel culture. I'm also not like its biggest critic either. Like, I I think holding people accountable for getting away with things that were always bad but we turned a blind eye to for a very long time. Yeah, that that needs to be happen. That needs to happen. We need to hold people accountable. But one of the negative consequences of 
cancel culture is that I think it encourages people not to have heroes because one day you might find out something, some dirty laundry about that person, and then you feel guilty about supporting that individual. And this is a bigger, more nuanced conversation that needs to happen. But like, I've, I've experienced this in my own life. Uh, for those of you who know more of my personal story, you know that the inspiration, the hero who God used to get me um, to put this in my mind of going into ministry was Billy Graham. I was I was in sixth grade. I was writing a report on the life of Billy Graham for a class assignment. And by the end of it, I felt the call to ministry. And to this day, Billy Graham is still one of my heroes. When he passed away, you would be surprised how many people texted me condolences on it. Like, I'm just some random guy. I'm not even related to his family, even slightly. And I had all these people reaching out to me to like wish me well for his passing. But I need to not turn a blind eye to the fact that Billy Graham did say some very anti-Semitic things in his life. Um, particularly, I believe it was with Nixon. Like, there's, yeah, nobody is perfect. And like I said, this is a much bigger new more nuanced conversation that needs to be needs to happen here. But I do getting back to the movie, I did like this line. An encouragement, if you take anything away from this, it is okay to have heroes and to look up to people. And not all of those people have to be Christians. And this is coming from the guy who really likes the music of REM. Moving on in the movie now, I already talked about the ethics part. Another good scene, another good conversation that happened is Bonhoeffer is talking to his regional bishop at one point. He has officially been recruited to join this group that's trying to assassinate Hitler. He's working as a spy. And they're having this conversation. And this is a conversation that is very similar, again, to this uh, writing that we talked about earlier, the speech he gave to try and drum up some sympathy for the German people, that at this time, circa 1939-1940, people outside of Germany, they, they say, uh, I think it's the bishop who says this, that people outside of Germany are now starting to have a hard time seeing the difference between Germans and Nazis. And yeah, that definitely happened. And there's probably still some people to this day who have a hard time seeing the difference between a German and a Nazi. It was a good little moment of like this nuance of, hey, not everybody in Germany was supporting what Hitler was doing. They all weren't Nazis, even though they may have been going through the motions so that way they could continue to live and work and do some underground ministry still within the state or in the country of Germany. Now there is one part of this movie that, and the life of Bonhoeffer in general, that may lead, that may leave some modern viewers. It might make you feel a little uncomfortable. And in a movie about, in a movie full of swastikas, it's actually not that part that is the uncomfortable thing. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about Bonhoeffer's fiance, Maria. We haven't talked about Maria at all. Maria, I'm probably going to butcher this. Maria Vedenmeyer uh, was born born to a very wealthy family. She is she was um, she was part of Prussian Prussian nobility. She was like the you know, Prussia didn't exist by this point, but she was like descendant. That's where I'm looking for of Prussian nobility. Uh, she first met Bonhoeffer when she was 12 years old, going through, um, going through confirmation. She was 12 years old. Bonhoeffer was 30. Bonhoeffer was doing the confirmation for her. The family asked him to do it for her, her siblings, and uh, their cousins. After Bonhoeffer's return from his second trip to America in 1939, they reconnected, and by January of 1943, they were engaged. He was 36. She was 18. So, I I thought about making a few additional comments beyond this point, but... It's all hearsay. I shouldn't say hearsay. That's not the right word. It's all speculation on my end. Um, the point of the matter is two things. One, if you watch this movie and you think to yourself, man, Bonhoeffer's looking a little old to be flirting with that girl it's because she is pretty young in real life. And she was pretty young at the time. And I guess that's all I'm going to say about it. Anytime there's a significant age gap between a couple, there is sometimes some turning of heads. Uh, In this case, an 18-year gap between the two of them and what seems to be a relationship that was formed while she was a minor, but it's Germany during World War II. I don't know what it's like to live there. Um, The sad part is, Like I said, they were engaged in January of 1943. Like I talked about last time, Bonhoeffer was arrested in April of 43 and was ultimately executed April of 45. So sadly, they were never married and never had any children together. She was never arrested. Maria was never arrested, lived to see the end of the war. And actually, just to finish her story out, she got involved in computer science, wrote early coding programs for computers, got really invo- heavily involved in that. Eventually, she donated all of her letters, uh, so that way great books like the one I'm reading could be made, and uh, ultimately died of cancer in 1977. So, Again, going to this what-if scenario that we like to kick around every once in a while, the idea of Bonhoeffer surviving the war, or uh, yeah, surviving the war, getting out of prison before the war ends or by the time the war ends, and them being able to get married and start a family together, and her dying of cancer, and you know him having to reflect upon that. At one point, you know, like like C.S. Lewis when his wife passed away and, you know, or even just to think about like what Bonhoeffer on the ethics side of things would have said about like 
the early days of computers, you know. So, so yes, all of this is to say that um, if you watch this, again, if you watch this movie and you're like, this is interesting, y- yes, yes, and I'm just going to let that be. Um, the rest of the movie, like I said, eventually Bonhoeffer gets arrested. He's taken to prison. We get to see, like I talked about in last week's episode, we get to see the interrogations play out of him trying to like navigate what it means to tell the truth. And there's even a scene, and I felt like, have you ever seen that meme? Uh, it's from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing really excited like he sees something that he recognizes. There was a scene that I was like, oh, I know exactly that's from that's from the unfinished essay on to tell on telling the truth that we talked about last week. Because he's talking to, he befriends one of the guards and they're like talking about like lying and telling the truth. And he gives this example. I didn't talk about this example in the episode, but he gives this example of how when a teacher asks a child, if the child's father came home drunk again last night and the child says no to protect the father, the child is, in Bonhoeffer's ethical framework on telling the truth, the, t- the child is actually telling the truth because the person asking the question is abusing their power and authority to ask an inappropriate question of the child. The child is going to lie with all their might, Bonhoeffer says, to protect their father from a question that shouldn't have never been asked in the first place. And as soon as he started this illustration, I was like, I know exactly where that came from. Ultimately, not to spoil the ending of um, the movie for you, but as we've mentioned a few times now, Bonhoeffer is sadly executed. Um, April of 1945, the war ended in September of 1945. So he just missed being liberated. And for a low-budget kind of cheesy Christian movie, I actually felt something there at the end. I know how it ends. I knew how it ended. Bonhoeffer is hung butt naked. Like, this is the end of the story for him. And there is this scene just prior to it where Maria is hiding during an air raid, and she remembers Bonhoeffer's words of have faith for the future, okay? And that's supposed to be, like, the token, like, joyful moment, the hopeful moment right before the end. But the movie ends with Bonhoeffer just standing there right before the gallows, and the movie goes to dark. And there's no thing that comes up on the screen that says, you know, the... Japan and the Axis powers fell and or surrendered in September of 1945. There's nothing that says all this stuff. I talked about Maria, how she goes on to have this career in computer science. There's nothing about like how many copies of Bonhoeffer's books that have been published throughout the years or have been bought throughout the years. Like there's there's nothing like this. The movie just ends with Bonhoeffer moments before being hung, 
screen goes dark, and then the credits roll with like a picture of Bonhoeffer. That's it. And it actually made me feel something. I'm an overly emotional, pretty sensitive guy, so it doesn't really take much to make me feel something. But like I felt the weight. I felt the heaviness. And I've, you know, I've seen these based on a true story Christian films before. I've seen the ones of like John Huss and others who, uh, people who are martyred for their faith. And it's kind of presented as this like big crowning victorious moment when the person is martyred. With this, it really did kind of feel like a defeat. It felt like a dark heaviness of like, oof. This didn't end well. This did not end well for him. This did not end well for the hero of the story. And it and it made me feel something. And I think this is another reason why this movie is worth checking out. It's worth checking out on the fact that it's not three hours long like most movies are. It but it yeah whether on purpose or not, it actually made me feel something. It made me feel the weight of the moment of this was a man who gave his life to try and preserve the gospel in Germany, and he paid the price for it. He lost being able to see Germany come out the other side of World War II. He lost being able to start a family. He lost being able to continue on in ministry, preaching, and writing. He lost everything in a very vulnerable, dark place. And it's sad. And I I don't know. Like, it would have been nice to have the little bit of like a, but it's, it's kind of cheerful. Like, here we are, 2023, still talking about this guy and the stuff that he wrote. Like he's had this lasting impact and that's worth celebrating. But it was almost refreshing to have a Christian movie that ended sadly. Who would have thought? And that's it for my uh, review of Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace. If I must give it an arbitrary rating, I rate things on a scale of 1 to 5 because 1 to 10 is just too much. I would say this is a nice solid 3, maybe 3.25. Like it's a nice, solid, average movie, probably better than some of the other ones you could think of that came out during the year 2000 Christian movie wise. But let me know what you think. If you finish this episode and check out the trailer and go check out the movie on all one of those platforms I talked about earlier, come back to the post here on Facebook or Instagram at my seminary life pod. And let me know what you thought of it. And let me know, would you like more Christian movie reviews. I have kicked around starting a show that just reviews cringy Christian movies because Bonhoeffer Agent of Grace is not an an anomaly. A lot of Christian movies are available on all of the free streaming platforms. I really don't know why people pay for Pure Flix. I don't. I, I think VeggieTales is on there. I think that's like the place to get VeggieTales. Or maybe that's a different one now. I don't know. Anyway, well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I appreciate all of you, and I appreciate 
uh, everyone who has stuck with it from the beginning here at the beginning of June with the summer of Bonhoeffer. Like I said, we will be back for more in the future. But hey, if you really, 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 really enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. And head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash mslpod where you can leave a little virtual tip for the show or you can subscribe to one of our support tiers. For everybody who subscribes for $9 a month, you get a shout out here on, on the show. So thank you, Lori, for supporting the show. Appreciate you so much. Who's going to be next? Who's joining the lineup next? Find out next week's episode, maybe, hopefully. Um, like I said, next week, we have the start of our brand new series. We're kicking off the fall with Ancient Greece. Now, I'll talk about this more next week. But I know, I've been doing this long enough, that when you do this series format, that there's always a drop off. There's people who have come for the Bonhoeffer content, and they will leave until there is more Bonhoeffer content. I, I, I get it. Because it was great. But just hear me out on this. If you're one of these people who's kind of on the fence about this whole... Like, why are we doing a series on ancient Greece? Come back next week. I, it, it, I will go into it further about why we're doing this series, why I think it's important. Just give it one episode. And if you like movie reviews, there's going to be a handful of movie reviews during this series as well. So keep that in mind as well. That's it for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. This is Brandon signing off, reminding you as always that theology is for everyone. So keep on studying.